Imperfect joy doesn't just exist in the rare community, right? A beautiful example of what I'm trying to portray through my work. It exists within each and every one of us that there's that challenge of, of joy and pain side by side. Welcome to the special edition of FemPower Health. This is Georgie. Today, we're shifting our focus from healthcare experts to extraordinary individuals making a difference in everyday life. We're thrilled to welcome Melody Joy Payne of Imperfect Joy, a visionary who uses photography and filmmaking to illuminate the joys and challenges of family life. Melody's unique perspective, shaped by her work with families facing rare diseases and her recognition as a Sony Alpha Female Plus grant recipient, offers us invaluable insights. As the holidays approach, a tough time for many, we delve into a conversation about resilience, hope, and finding beauty in life's imperfections. Join us in this heartening discussion where Melody and I also share our personal struggles. Together, we explore how we can learn from everyday heroes among us and how their stories can inspire us to navigate life's challenges. So let's embark on this journey together. Well, Melody, thank you so much for joining me on the FemPower Health podcast. Actually, a dear friend of mine, Karen. So Karen, if you're listening, thank you. Um, introduced us. And I think she just was like, you two have to meet. And so we had such a wonderful conversation about the work that you do. And I know on this podcast, it's a lot about education on various health topics, but you know, mental health is such an important thing that we, I guess, can't discuss enough because it is complex and hard. And you have such an interesting role that you're playing in this world to help us. And it's all about finding joy in places that we wouldn't necessarily um, expect. And so I think today we're going to learn a lot of great things around how we can find joy, even when life is um, very challenging. And so I'm really excited to just have this conversation. And I hope that it inspires um, people as we continue with our chat. So Without further ado, why don't you share with us your background so we can set the stage and then we'll dive into our conversation. Sure. I mean, my background is quite the journey to get here. Um, just kind of briefly about where I am right now is that I am a filmmaker helping rare disease patients and families share their stories. Uh, that comes about in a couple of ways. I really believe that there should be a space for families to share their authentic stories in a, in a vulnerable way without anybody else dictating what they should and should not say. Because oftentimes, as it should be, the patient voice is paired with marketing materials. And, and I do that as well, but I really believe that there's a space that is necessary for people to express who they are, not just by their diagnosis, but who they are as people. And my business is called Imperfect Joy because, as you said, you know, joy is kind of a central theme of the work that I do in many ways. In this particular instance, I think it's so important because when we can tell stories that depict the challenges of life, so many of these things are things that if you haven't been through rare disease, you and I might not know what that's like. But what we do relate to is the joy in being connected with those around us, with, with our loved ones. So I always make a point of representing these stories in families' homes where they're most comfortable being themselves and really representing that joy in places that are unexpected. That might just be everyday moments around the house, like sitting down at the dinner table, 
or something as extraordinary as a wish trip for a kid with a critical illness. So um, for me, there's a lot of places that that joy shows up and is really worthy of being documented. Thank you for sharing that. So what I would love to understand is how did you even get into to doing this work? You know, when I was a kid, I wasn't like, I want to help rare, rare disease patients with, through filmmaking. Like that wasn't the journey. But what I really did want to do from the time that I was teeny tiny was be a doctor. So I went down the road of, you know, kind of the expected of going into pre-med and getting a bachelor's in biology. And for about three years afterwards, I spent some time as a research assistant at Boston Children's Hospital. And it gave me the opportunity to really shadow all of the people and, and places that I thought I might want to be in my future. And I was really... I felt like they didn't really hit what I was looking for in the sense that I really wanted to develop relationships and connections with people and to help them to live a better quality of life, not just have a quick 15 minute visit. Or in the case of like neuropsychology, where they're spending a lot more time with patients, they don't often get to see patients again very often, right? They're not, it's not a frequent visit. And so I felt like I was still missing a piece that was important to me. And then when uh, shortly after I got married, my husband lost his mom. And four months later, I lost my brother to a car accident. And it was kind of that pause button. And I, I honestly thought at the time that I was going to go back to med school after all of this. But I knew that time is precious and limited. And I wanted to spend that time with my loved ones, in particular, starting our family and raising my babies. So I... I told my husband I was going to be a stay-at-home mom and he kind of laughed because I'm like a very driven, motivated person. And he knew I needed something to do. And that thing that kind of just naturally came about was that I documented my own family's story through photography. And um, so I, I started in family photography and taking pictures for, for people. There was a little boy named Reed who was two years old and he had a heart transplant that was failing. And his parents asked if I would be there to document their last moments together. So for six hours, I just bawled my eyes out. People always ask, like, how can you do that? It still affects me very much. But I know in that space that I have something that's really important to do. Um, so I held it together enough to stand there for, like I said, six hours and just really document their journey. When I got home, I told my husband, I was like, I got to because my kid was two at the time. And I gave him a kiss. I was like, I got to go out and get this done now. And I went out to do my editing, which is where I really process a lot of these things. I've done a fair amount of bereavement work, but this one was really heavy to be part of such an experience. And so when I got to my computer, I saw that it wasn't in these like picture perfect moments. You know, like when you start out on a photography journey, honestly, you're trying to figure out all the ways to make your pictures better. And being a perfectionist myself, it was like, okay, let's get golden hour lighting and make sure everyone's posed right. And this knocked all of that out. I mean, what I saw in something that was so heartbreaking was also the beauty of their connectedness to each other and their hands holding each other. And everybody loves their baby's eyelashes and the Spider-Man toy that he held because that was his favorite character. Like it was these details of life that were about them and their journey together that really held the story. At this point, I did not know film. I kind of came to film because I was from that session, 
on this journey to capture what, like, what is imperfect joy, right? How can you hold pain and joy in the same space? Absolutely. Because they can coexist. And I didn't want it to only be in loss, in grief, in pain. That's that intense. And so I came to film as a way that was like very, it was a very visceral experience to be part of the journey initially as kind of memory films for families. So this was initially originally intended to like let people go back to a point in their life where they could relive their most precious memories. And then when I met Abriella, I realized that there was a space for these stories to also engage others in almost experiencing the journey alongside them. And when, so Abriella was a six-year-old girl on hospice. Her, her brother um, lost his battle to mitochondrial disease two years earlier. And her family was like, we are doing everything we possibly can with her while she's here. So they made this list of the bucket list that they wanted to do. And one of the items on it was to have a wedding day. They're thinking like, you know, a little picnic at the park, um, have her have a beautiful dress, whatever. Well, our community caught wind of it and like threw her a legitimate wedding day. I mean, she had a unicorn, a horse and carriage. Like it was a really magical experience to be part of. But this was actually, more importantly in my journey, the first time that I sat down with a family before their day happened, this was kind of on a whim. They had no idea we were doing this. I kind of didn't either. I just went with it. And we sat down and we talked like for a couple hours and they just shared what this experience has been like for them and what this setting meant because isolated, it just looks like it's a wish day, but as part of their journey, it's so much more than that. So I went from there to try to find like, where are the spaces that I can share more of these stories? And um, with many twists and turns, rare disease just kept popping up. Uh, I think that these families just so, there's so much power in their stories and it's so important for them to share them that they kept coming to me. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to help the rare community. Like I'm going to go all in on this and, and make this a place where imperfect joy can really live and grow to share the story of my mission of what imperfect joy is, but also in supporting um, these people through a difficult, through a difficult time. It's hard to understand someone's life until you've been in their shoes, but we can't always be in other people's shoes. I'm just so curious with this interesting perspective that you have and being so intimate with these people's lives, kind of what your perspective is on how we can learn from others' experiences. Oh, that's such a great question. Um, so I, what you brought up kind of reminds me a little bit about an interview that I did recently for a woman who lost her son to uveal melanoma, um, which is a melanoma behind the retina. And she had a melanoma diagnosis herself prior to this. She was part of um, support groups through Impact Melanoma that it was, it was, it was a group called Billy's Buddies. So they partner you with an individual who has been through this journey before. And she shared like why that was so impactful. And what really resonated with me was kind of this space of like, when you have somebody who's been through it, there's no expectation from them. There's no um, feeling of that. Oftentimes if somebody's not been through it and you tell them about your experience, they're imagining it, right? We mirror emotions and feelings with individuals. 
But what's difficult is when somebody puts themselves in their pl- in your place where they're imagining their own kid going through this. And it's so difficult that the person who's sharing their story almost has to comfort them instead of just openly sharing everything as it is. They feel there's some something that they have to hold back or not share or some concern instead of just being able to be where they are. Um, there's kind of guards and filters. So I think the sharing in the space of people who've been through something difficult, it doesn't have to be the same thing. It's more of like as Brene Brown talks about empathy versus sympathy, right? Empathy is being able to relate to the emotion, to the emotion, not to the experience. And so I don't know what it's like to lose my daughter at six years old, but I do know how heartbroken I was when I lost my brother. Um, when I lost other people in my life, right? I know that feeling of complete and utter heartbreak that allows me to really like connect to them in a space that I can be just a listener. I mean, of course, there's ways in which it affects us to listen to other stories. And I think that's for me why it's so important to pair the two of the imperfect and the joy, because people ask me oftentimes, like, how do you how do you do this? Like, it must be so draining. And to me, I'm kind of in a sense simultaneously fill, emptying and filling my cup, right? Like there's the difficult conversations, but then by being present for the things that are beautiful, it allows me to continue to do this work. And not all of these stories end in loss, right? Many of them are children who have challenging situations and they're persevering through it every single day. It's not all kids. Sometimes it's adults. Right. And so being able to like, in a sense, learn empathy by being able to share stories, I think is a really important skill to have, not just in situations like this, where I'm sitting down and interviewing somebody, but even in life situations, when a friend of mine loses a loved one and what do I say? How do I respond? Do I respond? Like all of these situations that I've been able to be a part of have helped me to learn how to do that better. It, it is true that if if someone, if you haven't been in an experience like that, I, I never even thought about it, but you're right. You almost have to comfort that person because they, they it could be very close to home. Like I know, you know, my father died during COVID, not from COVID. My mother died very young. So I, my son doesn't have grandparents from my side and that's been hugely traumatic. And I feel like no one around me understands because I'm in this community where most people are married. They're all going on holidays with their families. And I'm like, um, I don't have anyone. And I've had to like have the guts to put myself out there to say like, can I hang out with you guys for the holidays? Because I don't really have anyone to hang out. And I would get really upset that people wouldn't even think to contact me to be like, are you okay not not having anyone to be around for the holidays? Like, I can't believe I'm sharing this on, on the podcast, but it can be really hard when you're fighting these things. And, you know, I agree, like the benefit though of, of moving here and leaving New York City is I had, do have an incredible community. And now I do have people where, I even feel comfortable just saying, hey, guys, can I come over for Thanksgiving? Because I don't really have anyone to hang out with. It's it's so nice. So I do agree, like the connections, finding the people who get you and community is so important because we're all going to have tough times. 
Yeah. I mean, I think speaking to that, I, a lot of, a lot of people on these journeys will express of rare disease will express that it, it can be a lonely road because oftentimes, I mean, there's some diagnoses that they're the only kid in the world with their known disease or they're, they're one of five or one of 200, right? Like there's not really necessarily a community of people that expressly relate to what they're going through. And even within that community, they might all have different symptoms. And so I think my husband and I were talking recently about like what really is loneliness and it's a feeling like we're disconnected from others. Yet those connections are kind of still there and waiting, but how do we access them? And I think when we share authentically and we're not just bottling it all in, it allows space for us to be more connected to the people around us. Because how how much more likely is it that somebody is going to call you up now and be like, hey, I heard your podcast. I want you to know that I think of you all the right. time and I just don't do it. Right. There's that, that those connections exist and we're just not accessing them sometimes when we're going through something that, that feels so heavy that, that reaching out almost feels like too much. Right. I know I introduced this as mental health, but I think it's an overlay or an underpinning, however you want to look at it, for a lot of challenges in life, right? And these health conditions, like there are obviously these rare diseases, there are, you know, chronic conditions where people suffer severe pain and that can be isolating because they can't move. And so maybe there's a lot of other people with pain, but if you can't leave your house, you may feel lonely and isolated and like, how do I even function? Um you know, or um, like I gave the example of infertility or something where you are struggling and can't figure out the answer and you're exhausted. And I'm sure a lot of these rare disease patients um, and their families feel that way. So, so tell us um, what you're learning from them as far as how they create community. Mm, oh my gosh. They're that's one of the things that has really amazed me about when, when, when I say rare disease community, that's kind of like how it's referred to is like they as a group see themselves as needing to work together to solve some of these problems. Now, there are times that there's kind of like what look seem like little battles within the communities of like fighting for funds, which are, you know, these resources are there. It's right. about like, how do we access them? And when the community can come together under one voice, it's a lot easier to do that. However, there are there are disease states that get a lot less support than others. So when you think of, so nano rare is 30 or less patients diagnosed with a condition across the world. And there is a nonprofit called Enlorum that was started by Stanley Crook, who founded a pharmaceutical company. Um, I think it was 20 years ago, I can't remember how long, retired and then said, these patients need our help. What if we take these pharmaceuticals that we've already taken through the pipeline of testing and we tweak them to fit, to, to serve these patients and give them therapies? And it's it's essentially a, a, a nonprofit biotech company. Like they're creating, they're creating therapies for some people that are like the only ones that are going to receive this treatment. And it, it, on average, it costs, I think, like one and a half million dollars per, per person to take them through this process. And so I think part of this sense of 
when you're when you're so far removed from other people experiencing it, there's still a community behind you to support you. And it's about finding it. And sometimes it's about creating it. Because if you look at the rare disease community, most of the patient advocacy groups have been started by either a patient or a family member. And so it, one, just kind of also tying into like women's health here in, in a sense is that the largely, I'm not saying exclusively, but largely the burden of pediatric rare disease falls on the shoulders of mothers. They're leaving their jobs to care for their kids full time. And on top of that, because their child doesn't have any therapeutic treatment or cure, they're forming organizations like whole nonprofits and fundraising millions of dollars sometimes so that they can hire researchers to find a molecule to help treat their child and finding all the ways that they can piece that together with the biotech and pharma companies who would develop the treatments. And they're navigating this whole other world on top of still tr like caring for their child who has sometimes very complex medical needs. So I, I can imagine, having not been through that myself, that that journey must be exhausting. And I think that's oftentimes where they find connectedness, that they're not doing this alone, that they're doing it with other people and other people believe in it. You know, my son had a, a chronic condition that if only the pediatricians would have um, diagnosed it when he was born, welcome to our healthcare system. And it almost broke all of us. I don't think I realized how much it was affecting us until we finally found a place that could help him. So it wasn't something he could die from or anything like that, but it was, you know, certainly affecting everyone. And it was really hard because there were a lot of people who, let's just say, made our life more challenging because they didn't understand and chose to be judgmental rather than supportive, which also I was already at a breaking point and that just was way too much. And um, I actually struggled to find community. And so it did feel like going at it alone. And now that he is past it and we finally found the right healthcare providers who would actually help him, our entire lives have changed. And so I see the comparison contrast of like mm -hmm. resolution or at least hope for the future because we're not past it yet. I, I can't even imagine what these families who, I mean, I'm assuming with the rare disease, it's probably not cures. It's more, how do you survive and thrive as best as possible? So I, I just have to ask, like, how are they coping? Like, what are you learning from it? What I have seen through the people that I've talked to is that there's a range in there of some people who go the direction of doing absolutely everything that they can to find a treatment for their child because it's their coping mechanism and it's their escape and it's their way of just feeling like they're in control of something, right? And some people don't find the space to live life in the joy because that is all consuming. But I think that there's such a spectrum of that with people who are doing this in a way that provides meaning and purpose and a sense of fulfillment and a sense of, I can do something. It might not be an immediate fix, but I can do something and I can contribute. I think that it it's very kind of individual. And I, I think a lot of, so a lot of these organizations end up, when you look at patient advocacy group raising millions of dollars, that's not one person. 
right? They can't do that on their own. They need community. They need people behind them. They need more than just one of them to do that. And so out of necessity, I think you build connections and what you do with that is kind of up to the individual and their journey um, and how they're able to kind of access still existing in the world of helping their child through advocacy, but also living this life with them and in all of its difficulties and in the joyful moments. There's ups and downs with anything. I mean, I I think of the world we're in right now and, you know, we're in a, a rough economy. I know a lot of people are losing their jobs and there's just a lot of sadness going on right now um, and scary times. And I do think it's, um, it is community. So uh, do you have any learnings from talking to these families and even your own life experiences around getting out of that loneliness piece? We do struggle and it can be scary when we feel like we're not being understood. What, what can these families teach us about feel that isolation, um, that feeling of isolation, I should say, and how they've been able to get out of it? Because you still have to take that first step. Yeah, I think I'll speak a little bit first to kind of my own journey. I should mention that uh, the main reason that I kind of pursued this desire to be a doctor and then, you know, applying that want to help people in times of sickness or disease to my film and photography, like to my art, was because of my mom. So my mom has multiple sclerosis. She was diagnosed in 2001. Um, she was diagnosed only four months after I lost my best friend's parents to homicide suicide. And I was only 12 years old. And there's, I mean, it was a long time ago and there's a lot that I remember very clearly about that time. And there's a lot that I don't, I do remember a period in which I wanted nothing to do with my mom's diagnosis. I didn't want people to see her coming to the baseball field with crutches. I just basically didn't want to acknowledge it. And I don't know what the turning point was, but there came a time where I found that it was a beautiful connection to my mom to be able to go to the grocery store with her every week, pack up our PBJs and eat in the car and, and have that time together. And so I became, in a sense, more like a caregiver role. But to me, it was more of like, I get to have this time with my mom. Like because of my mom's MS, she's able to be here for all my concerts as I was a musician. And she's able to go on um, field trips with me that she wouldn't otherwise. And there's obviously give and take there. Like we, we couldn't go on big family vacations. She didn't have the energy for it. Now she struggles to watch the kids once a week for a couple of hours and recovers for another week before she can do it again. Um, because her fatigue and pain is so high. So I think for me and my journey, what she has taught me is that she doesn't need to go on big vacations. Like she doesn't need to have extraordinary things. And it doesn't necessarily have to be connections through a lot of people like we have each other. And and yes, we need we need a broader community. But the more I connect to the people who are really meaningful in my life, the less alone I feel. And they're right there and they want the same thing. So I, I think that sometimes when we're in pain, or at least I should say for myself, when I'm in pain, sometimes I push away those that I'm closest to. 
why do we do that? So some degree, I'm not really sure. Like, I think maybe it's because we're safe with those that are closest to us to be vulnerable and share all the range of emotions, which sometimes is anger, but underlying that is so many other things. But when we can get when we can get to the place that we can share what's truly going on, that's when we can open up to connection with each other. For me in 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 my journey, it has really been about embracing the relationships that I have around me as a space that is really sacred and beautiful and important. And also from seeing these families in this rare disease community, realizing how much over the years I kind of have neglected to look outside of that, that 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 looking beyond my little circle is still really important. And so, you know, in some ways I feel like an outsider to the rare disease community because, okay, sure, I have a rare diagnosis. It doesn't affect me that much, but I do. Like, so technically I am, but I haven't gone through what a lot of these families have. And so I have to represent through their stories, what their journey is. And I really feel that that's an important part of advocacy that's often missing is that we're not connecting to the people. And so when we have, when we want to answer the question of like, what does it look like to cultivate joy, to be connected, to not let a diagnosis like this kind of bring our entire life down, we, we look to, to these stories for that answer. Um, because it's through experiencing it with them that we can really see where meaning and purpose are um, in this journey. I don't know if everyone feels this way, but sometimes I'm like, you know, I want to learn from people like, how do we get to that? I don't know, for lack of a better word at the moment, that perfect place where all the pain and suffering ends. We don't. It's always an up and down. And I'm finding sometimes you can have both feelings. You could be angry that you're the one struggling at the moment um, and also grateful that you know the ups and downs of life and you're so joyful when things are going well because you've been through the really big downturns as well. But you can be feeling both feelings that are on the opposite ends of the spectrum at the exact same time. Would you say that that's a fair statement? Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of there was a podcast between Brene and Karen Walrand. And she, she, de- I'm not going to do it justice entirely. It would be better to listen to how she described it. But she said something about how even in nature, there are ebbs and flows. There's a rise and fall of the tides, right? There's most of our life is lived in the in between, not at the super highs and the super lows. So knowing that when we are in the super lows, that we're going to move through that. And it's not going to stay there forever is really important. But also knowing that the super highs are not to be expected to like be the the norm, right? They're, those are should be pretty unusual to be kind of on the top of the mountain. And so how, when we're in between, do we determine what that range looks like? And allowing ourselves to have permission to know that pain and joy can coexist, but that there's times that we can just accept that it really sucks, right? And then there's times that we can allow ourselves to feel the joy without feeling guilty because there's something else going on that should receive our recognition in a, in a painful way. Like those can stay there side by side. And I think that's what's really important is being able to allow those to be in the same space in our lives. 
I know sometimes women are are coined as having guilt over taking care of oneself, et cetera. And, you know, I think I will say though, based on what you were just saying, it reminds me when I have incredible joy, I feel like I, I feel way less guilty. Part of it I've heard is because once you hit this age, so I'm almost 50, once you get 40 to 40s and then the 50s, like you care less. And I think a lot of it's just the hormones that are left in your body at these stages of life. Um, but also with all the stuff that I've gone through, I mean, it's been 20 years and it was just like my life just hit me left, right and center all the time. So like everything people experience over a very long period of time, it was like in 20 years, boom, boom, boom. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And so when the joy comes, I'm like, oh yeah, I deserve this. But then they pass and then the ebbs and flows come again. You know, it's just, it's just how, uh, how it works. Yeah. And I, I think when you say that they're little things, oftentimes we're not present for the joy that exists there, right? We're just not even recognizing it because oftentimes I think that joy exists in the ordinary moments. And it's the things that we think are just part of everyday life. And, you know, when kids are growing, especially like they'll never change. You know, my, my daughter had a freckle on her arm. She used to point at it and call it a Beppo. She was like, what, a year old, something like that. Well, lo and behold, she doesn't call it a Beppo anymore. She doesn't even point to her freckle anymore. And she's four years old. (laughs) And so being able to, for me, recognize that those are things that are meaningful and joyful and preserving them are really important. And it doesn't require somebody like me to create a film to do that, although I do provide an outsider's perspective to capture some of those things. Like sometimes it's really just about taking that moment to capture it with your phone and not just leave it sitting in the cloud, but actually like doing something with it, creating an album, putting it in a folder that's accessible. Imperfect Joy doesn't just exist in the rare community, right? A beautiful example of what I'm trying to portray through my work, it exists within each and every one of us that there's that challenge of of joy and pain side by side. I would love to hear some stories, like maybe concrete examples of places that you may not have expected one to find joy, but they have. Um, So I actually, before I did all of this film work in the rare community, I did, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, I did memory films. And so I went into people's homes. I had one mom, she was like, you're going to have to use circus music because our house is crazy. (laughs) I was like, I gotcha. And so she has, I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think she has seven children and most of them are adopted. So it is, it's a crazy household. There's a lot going on. And I actually like asked each kid to show me the things that they love to do. And so one kid brought me into his room and showed me his like toy cars that would like go down the track, right? because he was little, little. And then there was two boys, two brothers that just basically are crazy with each other. And that was all they did was play with Legos and uh, make noises and climb up their bunk beds. And so it's, I think for me, the unexpected is like being able to allow adults and kids to just be in the place that is who they are. I had a family just recently that has a farm in the town next door to me. They have always kind of dreamed of having a homestead. And now that they're there and this house that they bought has so many problems, they're going, I don't know if this is going to last, but we want to remember this phase together. 
And so for them, it was literally like petting their goats and, you know, watching mom milk the goats and make putting together potato salad. That's none of that is like, wow, that's amazing from the outside. But when you're living it and you're really there to experience it and not just go through the motions, it's, it's really a beautiful thing to be present for. Why is it so darn hard for us to remember that? Like I, you know, and I guess, I guess, you know, is that really it? We just have to accept life has its ebbs and flows. And when we can just try to remember and appreciate these stories of these families with the rare diseases certainly puts it into perspective, but we still struggle to keep that with us, right? I I think what you bring up too is that it's, there's the living in the moment um, access of joy. And there's also the accessing memories of joy. So I have done a lot of like inner child work with my therapist over the past year or so and didn't really realize that Brene talks about this all the time, that when you kind of dull the the pain by, um, you know, using for me, it's food, right? Like I use food to cope and like put, push down my emotions. I was also dulling the memories of the joy. I wasn't able to access those anymore. And so I recently drove down to Washington, D.C. for a rare disease conference from Massachusetts. So it was a pretty good drive. It was about seven hours. And it brought me back to when I was a little kid. I used We used to drive to Maryland once a year to visit my aunt. And it was some of my favorite memories of childhood. And more so, it was memories, really foundational memories that I made with my brother. And I hadn't allowed myself to go back there for so long that at first I sat in the car and just bawled my eyes out driving down the highway for no apparent reason (laughs) to anybody else but me internally, right? Um, Allowing myself to feel the pain of him not being here. But then as I went through this trip and I like went on the train and remembered like as a kid being so excited about how fast the train went in the subway um, and these kind of like keystone moments with Joe, it it allowed me to really go back and feel so much more full of the times that really did have a lot of meaning to me. It's a practice, right? It's constantly a practice. You know, I've tried many tricks myself. Like I'm like, what if when I'm feeling, because I also have really bad um, anxiety. And by the way, can I just tell you, sleep, limiting sugar, and no alcohol. Those are like baseline and then all the other nuances that our doctors can help us with. Those have been game changers for me. Um, I do agree, good cries. I had a good cry in Halloween. I had to go take my son. I was like, oh my God, how am I gonna do this? I was. It was a bad day. Like everything just kept hitting one after the other. And I'm like, this is a special day. My son needs to go trick-or-treating and I was a mess. So I had a really good cry and oh my God, it was the best night ever. Um, I just got it all out and I was just ready to be present. Um, and it was truly amazing. So I, that's another thing I find is if I sit down and I say, I don't have an answer and it is okay to just go in and let things unfold. I find when I do that, magic happens, but then there's self-care. Mm-hmm. Like a, another bit of advice that I, I um, have been given is what's your self. So not necessarily, what do you enjoy doing? And when you're feeling good and try to do that when you're not feeling good, the advice I've gotten that actually I find works even better is the self-care, which I hope these, especially the moms of the rare disease patients are doing that 
because I find when you take care of yourself and do what you need to do, it really is like that formula they say on airplanes, which is, you know, put the air mask on yourself first before you put it on others. It really is not only a recharge, but like a way to start to dig out as well. And even the fr- the lifelines, the friends where you can just send the dumb text to, and they'll like respond back with something sweet to just get you out of a funk. Absolutely right. I mean, I have a friend whose daughter is one of five in the world with her genetic variant. She's the only one who's symptomatic and they don't, they, she doesn't actually have a diagnosis. So they're kind of, she, they put her under the umbrella of cerebral palsy okay. because through that diagnosis, they're able to get services that they wouldn't otherwise access. But there is a lot of unknowns there and they're constantly coming across new things that are, that are happening that are extremely difficult. And like she, she, the mom has to be there to care for her daughter. And so we, we were talking about like, what is self-care when you are needed 24 yeah. seven by your child? Because self-care doesn't have to be, I mean, so many people will talk about self-care and like going to get your nails done and leaving the house for a few. And like, literally sometimes it's just knowing that when you're completely overwhelmed and you're overstimulated and you need to leave the room for a second, as long as they're like good physically for three minutes, that it's okay and healthy to leave that space and to be in your own you know, your own environment for a minute and not everybody else's. Um, so I think, you know, self-care is sometimes looks like that, as simple as that. And sometimes it's really just about being able to like, you know, take a day and say, I don't feel up to working hard today. I just want to be with my kids or with my, my significant other or whoever it might be Like, like allowing ourselves permission to not always have to keep going, yeah. right? Because self-care can sometimes allow, be allowing ourselves to feel whatever it is. It might not be touchy-feely goodness. It might be letting yourselves have that good cry, right? Um, for, for my husband's mom, she always used to put on the same movie, right? And she would cry to it. So for her, that was like a form of self-care. So self-care is very unique to each individual, but I think the most important thing is knowing that it's not a one-size-fits-all and it doesn't always have to be a a specific way. It can change depending on the moment and what you need. This has been such a lovely, wonderful conversation to just hear. I think it sounds like we both have life stories and you have had such a... um, unique experience being able to enter the homes of all of these families who have children struggling with rare disease, which I can, again, only imagine um, what they're going through. But, you know, I really appreciate that you're creating a space where we can learn from their experiences. Because, you know, this conversation, some may say, I don't really get it because I haven't been through what you guys are talking about. But what I hope is that people learn about this and who are like, maybe I want to to be able to empathize a bit more for, for my friends, maybe watching your films um, would help them because I think seeing the families and hearing their stories would also help to another layer. And so I do encourage people to check it out. So where are you with that? Can we view online? Um, and I know you have a journey of trying to get them even more public. So tell us where you are on that and how we can support you. Yes. 
Yeah, I have a collection of a few films on at imperfectjoy.com under rare patient films. There's a story gallery there that has uh, Abriella's story and um, also a little boy named Connor who had a wish granted through Make-A-Wish Massachusetts, Rhode Island. That's a short one. It's like three and a half minutes long. Um, but I also have a sneak peek of a 10-minute film for a little boy who had a heart transplant. Um, he went on his wish trip to give kids the world village uh, to go to Disney and Universal and, and all the things in Florida. Um, so there's like a 10-minute cut of his. Where I'm, these films have all been donated time, self-funded. And so I've been trying to explore what ways we can kind of make sure that the authenticity of these stories is preserved while also getting funding to keep the, the stories moving forward. Um, so there's potential sponsorship opportunities with some industry partners that may be able to kind of help us do more of these films. But in the meantime, I'm just putting my time into it, um, doing it through charitable donations. We have a fiscal sponsor that allows us to receive charitable donations. So, um, we have one other story that's in the works. Uh, there's a little girl named Victory whose dad ran the Boston marathon for her. She has trisomy 13. Mm -hmm their story was just incredible. So they're in, and so varied. Every experience is very different for these families. So yeah, you can go to, to imperfectjoy.com and see some of them now and there'll be more to come for sure. Well, thank you for your commitment. And, you know, I, I find that so many of us who are creating these journeys, businesses, products often have the experiences behind it that keep us motivated to do them. And so thank you for your contribution to the world rooted in your own experiences. Um, and I can't wait to share this with everyone. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com. Drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.